Well, we're in Malachi chapter 2, and the section is um, 10 through to 16. Uh, we looked at verse 10 that highlighted a general problem in, uh, in Israel at the time. Um, Malachi asked some questions. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? We are one. We are uh, one family. We have one Father. Uh, why then do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Treachery uh, within Israel. Uh, other translations put it this way, unfaithfulness towards each other. Uh, disputes, um, disagreements, uh, dealing faithlessly with one another. And if we can't deal rightly with each other, Clearly, we're not dealing rightly uh, with our Heavenly Father. Disunity in the family of God. We dealt with that in a general sense last time. But now this evening, we want to come on to the particulars that were happening in Israel and then apply them to us in the year 2022. So let me read verses 11 through to 16. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel uh, and in Jerusalem. Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being, aware, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion, and your wife by covenants. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirits that you do not deal treacherously. So this passage really highlights what we would uh, consider some key pastoral issues. Now, where is it that our hearts are really revealed? When we um, open up and people can see us for what we, we really are. I, I believe it is in the home, with our wives and with our children or with our parents or grandparents. Uh, those with whom we spend most time uh, will know us the best. And the remarkable thing about that is that those who spent the most time with Jesus Christ could only say this, oh, in him was no, was no sin. There was never a wrong word in his mouth. Uh, he went around doing good. Uh, they could say that about Jesus Christ, but for, 
for you and I. I mean, you might think, I did uh, ask one or two folks here this morning what they thought of, of me, and uh, I think the general consensus was I seemed to be quite a good chap. But um, if I were to say to you, you know, really, my life is spotless, could you contradict me? I've only been here, oh, Ben thinks he can, he's nodding his head, because you know the scriptures, Ben, maybe uh, you don't know me that well, but those we don't know too well, we might get away with some sort of a, a veneer, but to settle with people day in and day out, you don't really know what I'm like, if I were to say, and I never would say, well, do you know I've reached that uh, point of sinless perfection, then there'd be laughter from this area here. And you could have a word with my wife. But in the home, in the home, husbands, it's your wife that knows the truth of the matter. Wives, it's your husband that knows the truth of the matter. And uh, our children know the truth uh, of the matter. And our parents know the truth of the matter. It's often said of some, it's a sad statement. Uh, oh, he's a saint in the pew, but a devil at home. What a shocking thing. Be. But we can fool people, there can be a veneer here, but what are we like in the home? So this section here in Malachi chapter 2 raises some key issues. Uh, marriage is addressed here. The raising of children is addressed here. I don't know if you noticed it, but it's clearly uh, addressed here. Who we should marry is addressed here, and why it is that we should marry who we do marry. Uh, singleness will be an issue, a little byproduct from this particular passage. Uh, raising children, divorce and remarriage. So a lot of issues are being dealt with here in this uh, short six or so verses in Malachi chapter 2. Um, now, I don't intend to uh, cover all those this evening. It would be impossible, but maybe emerging from this will be a little uh, mini-series about our relationships in, in the home. Well, let's focus this evening on the particular sin that's happening in Israel that's addressed here. Uh, Ezra is ministering at a similar time, so Ezra chapter 9 deals with the issue uh, as well, and uh, Nehemiah. So, to draw on these passages... But what's being highlighted here are bad marriages or wrong marriages. And bad marriages and wrong marriages can lead to uh, divorce. And then there's the question of, could I remarry? Uh, confused children who are brought up in a situation of trauma where there's disagreements between the husband and the wife. And uh, God's displeasure is clearly revealed in this area. Now, when it comes to who I should marry and who the Israelites should marry, God was very, very clear. He wasn't uh, fuzzy in his word or in his law, but very, very clear. Before they ever enter the promised land, here's what God has to say to his people. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, 
the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, but the Lord's going to cast them out that you might enter the land. And when he's done that, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. Now that's very, very clear. An Israelite marries an Israelite. Now this was not a racial issue. Let's make that absolutely clear. This was not a racial issue. Ruth, the Moabitess, marries the Israelite Boaz. Why? Well, she converts. She becomes a proselyte. She becomes willingly part of the people uh, of God. Remember that wonderful statement of, uh, of Ruth in Ruth chapter 1 and uh, verse uh, 16. Uh, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Don't send me away. I, I will go with you. Clearly, uh, she uh, comes to clear faith. Then there's Rahab. Not only is she a Canaanite, but she's also a prostitute. But clearly, again, uh, a convert. And I've forgotten now who she does marry, but she comes into the line of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ruth and Rahab uh, become those who were down the line. There's King David. And uh, I think there's like great, great grandmother and great, great, great grandmother. And then there's down the line, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not a racial matter. Moses marries a Midianite called uh, Zipporah. Uh, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and uh, he gets criticism uh, from his uh, sister. And uh, in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 1, then Miriam and Aram spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? They're critical of Moses. But, and the Lord heard it. Clearly, here again is one uh, Zipporah who had come to faith and she acts in a very wonderful way. When the Lord is about to kill Moses, she uh, circumcises uh, the, the child and... Uh, and um, that the Lord passes, passes over. It's quite a remarkable incident. We won't go into that now. Let's uh, pre press on. This is clearly not a racial uh, issue. This is a religious issue. It's based on a matter of holiness and purity before the Lord. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I should have kept my finger uh, in the page. Deuteronomy 7 where God gives that declaration, you shall not intermarry. He tells us why. Verse 4. For if you do intermarry, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you 
and destroy you suddenly. And here we have it in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 11 that Israel has dealt treacherously and profaned the Lord's institution that he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, not only were they taking foreign wives in Malachi's time, but these were foreign wives who were still devoted to their foreign gods. These were not proselytes. Uh, these were wives who came with their baggage and their hearts still set on their idols and their images and bringing in the worship of foreign gods. And still... They are worshipping these foreign gods. And God is displeased. Exodus chapter 20, here's the law of God. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, but I'll influence this dear woman who I love, who worships a foreign god. I will influence her. I will influence this man who worships foreign gods or has no faith at all, who doesn't even believe in gods. You shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water beneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. So there's the general problem in Malachi's time. The particular situation then, here are men who are marrying foreign wives who had not converted to Judaism and were bringing with them their baggage. Now some parallel passages. Let me turn now to uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. Again, contemporary with what uh, Malachi uh, is speaking of here. Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll just get through these basic passages, then we'll make some obvious applications. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 38. The people have gathered together and they're going to make and declare and sign a covenant with God. Here it is. And because of all this, we will make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites and our priests will seal it. And what is in this covenant? Well, that goes into chapter 10. Let's come down to verse 30. Here's one of the things that they commit to in the time of Nehemiah, who is around at the time of Malachi. We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. Nehemiah then goes away back to Persia for a little while. We don't know how long. The people have been steadfast, we'll make this commitment, we'll write this covenant, we'll sign it, and it includes not taking their daughters or their sons for our sons and daughters. So Nehemiah goes away for a while, then he returns, and we have chapter 13 of Nehemiah. Let me read verse 23 and onwards. So Nehemiah returns. In those days I also saw Jews 
who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other peoples. So I contended with them and I cursed them. I struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. That's interesting here. Interesting uh, level of church uh, discipline is being applied by Nehemiah. Uh, he's so distressed by what he sees happening. Such a short while after that covenant was made, uh, he, um, it's interesting, Ezra, uh, he rends his own garments and tears out his own hair. Nehemiah tears out the hair of those who've been offending. So a different approach by these two men. Don't know which approach is, is right, but both are grief-stricken before God that this terrible thing uh, has taken place. But there's a level of church discipline. Uh, pastors tearing out perhaps the hair of those who go astray. Now, I don't seriously, uh, obviously, recommend that area. In Ezra chapter 9, which uh, the chapter that we read, um, it seems that the chief culprits in this area of intermarriage sadly were the, uh, the leaders. Ezra chapter 9 and uh, verse 2. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Looking back on the history of things, um, Nehemiah brings up the case of, um, of Solomon. Back in Nehemiah chapter 13. Sorry to flick you around the Bible uh, so much, but in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 26, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. So you think of Solomon, that's a great king that uh, God blessed so powerfully, yet towards the end of his life, tragically, Solomon's heart was turned by foreign wives. And he had a number. He had a number. You wonder what happens. And here's a man who stood for God and greatly used by God. You would think, surely... If anybody could be an influence to pull others up, it would be uh, Solomon. But here's what the Bible has to say, how he goes so sadly astray. 1 Kings chapter 11. But King Solomon, this is towards the end of his life, loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely, here's the problem again, they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. 
And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. You can read on the rest of uh, 1 Kings chapter 11. Why does God give this rule? It's nothing about uh, a, a racial issue. It's a spiritual issue. Uh, God desires that a husband and a wife should be united in heart, in mind, in body, in soul, in spirit. One objective, pulling together. It's interesting the hymn that uh, we sang here, the last one. Until at last, when earth's day's work is ended, all meet thee in the blessed home above. From whence thou came, where thou hast ascended, thy everlasting home of peace and love. When it comes to the area of evangelism, I think one of the most powerful areas is a Christian home, where a husband and a wife are united together in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, pulling together, praying together, bringing up the children, the knowledge and admonition of the Lord, encouraging them to come to church and Sunday school and to come along to the clubs and rolling up their sleeves and working together, inviting people to the home, united together and seeking to glorify the Lord. And that's what God desires. Uh, a man and a wife, a husband and a wife together. And really, really, this is being profaned terribly here. And the people expect it to be business as usual. So the issue we're dealing with tonight is one of mixed marriages. Not a racial issue, but a spiritual issue. And it particularly affects young people, one or two engaged folks here tonight. I think you've chosen well. I was chatting with a young couple uh, yesterday morning, and what a delightful time uh, I had with them. Clearly two youngsters very much in love, primarily with Jesus Christ. That was what shone through in my time that I spent with them yesterday, that they really did love the Lord. I've got three marriages, weddings coming up uh, this uh, August, all within... Uh, seven days, uh, three marriages in a week, and uh, all Christian marrying a Christian. And there's the principle we want to bring out from the passages tonight. Marry a believer. If you're not yet married, who should you marry? Number one, you must marry a believer. It could be from any race, any nation. This is not a racial issue. It is a spiritual issue. And the real question we have to answer is this. Who do I love the most? Who do I trust the most? Who is my first love? We're going to finish with this great hymn in the not too distant future. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the nearer waters roll. While the tempest still is high, what Jesus Christ, uh, He's the one who should grip my heart. He's the one who I love. He's the one who I trust. And what does He say about uh, marriage? He says, I should marry another 
believer. And before I get emotionally entwined with somebody who's very beautiful or very handsome, but they're not a believer, remember your first love. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is and all He's done for you. We'll come on to, God willing, next time, how I find the right person to marry. But let this principle be very clear in our hearts and our minds. It's imbibed there and deeply set in the Old Testament and the reasons why these foreign gods, these foreign wives will turn your heart. Oh, I can bring them up. God in His mercy on occasions allows that to happen. But I've been a believer for 46. Yeah, it's 46 years coming up. And in the majority of cases, I've seen what the Lord says will happen here. It's quite the contrary. that The two aren't pulling together. But right fundamentally at the heart of the marriage, there is a contradiction. And the New Testament echoes the Old Testament principles very, very clearly. The passage I'm going to read to you uh, is wider than marriage, but it certainly includes marriage. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked, joined together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you, Christian, are the temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians 6, Know ye not your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, so you marry an unbeliever. It's not a temple of the Holy Spirit. What a contradiction. God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Why shouldn't I marry an unbeliever. Well, from the very nature of marriage, two become one. For this reason will a man leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now there's the sexual union, a physical union, where that uh, marriage is consummated. There is the emotional union. There's the mental union. Uh, the woman is the helper who is meet, who is suitable, the, the counterpart of her husband. Spiritually, above all, they are one together and pulling together in the same direction. Now, this coming summer, I think it's uh, 42 years. Anybody beat 42 years of marriage? Oh, quite a few of you can here tonight. How many years? 58 in July. Well, I could go around. We can probably beat that somewhere, I'm, I'm sure. What's our marriage built on? There are terrible statistics. The majority have given up getting married today. The statistics are so bad. And you think, what is, 
what is the point? But for those who do get married, around 50% fail. And that's not just in the unconverted world. It's a pretty high percentage, sadly, within the evangelical church. But for marriages to survive, there needs to be a rock. And that rock is Christ, and we're looking to pull together. Again, you might think, well, I can pull my unconverted partner up. I remember the story of, um, of Spurgeon. A lady went into his study. I mean, folks were invited to come and have a chat with me at the end if they'd like to do. And uh, Spurgeon was in his study. And a, and a lady came in. She said, oh, Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, I need your, your advice. Said, what, what is it, my dear? Well, I've met this lovely, lovely man. And he's asked me to marry him. But Mr. Spurgeon, he's... He's not really a religious man. But I, I'm sure, I'm sure if we marry, uh, he will come along. And uh, Spurgeon, to help the lady understand, he, he climbed up on his study table. He got onto the, he's quite a, a large gentleman, he was, onto the chair, then onto the table. And he said, my dear, let me see if I can pull you up. And he, he couldn't. Now you try and pull me down. I don't know what happened. He must have gone down with quite a thud, but uh, she did manage to pull him off the table. She pulled him down. Uh, he couldn't pull her up. Moving together. Take the example of Solomon there in the Scriptures as well. What a godly man. What a man greatly used of God. And yet how he fell with his foreign wives. We as the Lord's people have one aim. And that's to glorify the living God. Why should I marry uh, a believer? Well, for your well-being. That you find a helper suitable for you. For the well-being of any children. We're told here in the passage in Malachi. We'll look to open that up at some later point. God is concerned about the children who will be produced uh, in a marriage. It's certainly for your partner's well-being as well. How could he take you seriously? How could she take you seriously? You say you believe the Word of God, and the Word of God says you should marry a believer, and yet you will break that principle? How are they to believe you and take you seriously on any other area? No, for the well-being of them. Follow the principle that God lays down. He knows best. He's our maker. He's our keeper. He knows best for you. Now let me finish with this. Just to give a pastoral uh, note on things. I've given some principles from the Bible. And the great thing is here, a believer should marry a believer and a believer should not marry an unbeliever. What if you are already seriously entangled? What if you're already engaged to be married? What if you married uh, an unbeliever? See, nothing is simple and straightforward. Then I think this is where the pastoral issues really do need to be handled carefully. See, if you need to talk through these things, please don't be offended by what's been said. I've only opened up the Word of God in a very simple way tonight, a very limited way. We haven't taken too long about it. We looked at the Old Testament. We looked at the New Testament. We looked at the reasons that God gives why we should marry a believer, marry a believer. But there are difficulties. Maybe you're already 
seriously entwined. Maybe you're already married to somebody who is not converted. And if that is you, if you want some further thought and prayer and advice, then come and see perhaps myself or Wynne, and we'd be happy to talk with you and pray through your particular situation. But all I can do in a session like this, in a preaching session, is to look at the general principles being given in the Word of God. I said these are difficult areas that we're entering in Malachi chapter 2, but they're here, and so we need to face them. Now, next time, uh, God willing, we'll look at, if you are a believer, you're wondering, well, I'd like to get married. Uh, how do I find the right person? we we'll look at some principles around about there. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this brief time in your words, a difficult area, one that's not often uh, preached on, but here it is confronting us now in your word. We pray, Spirit of the living God, take these words and apply them to each of our hearts, to the glory of your name and for the good of our eternal souls. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's conclude with that great hymn of uh, Charles Wesley's, Jesus, lover of my soul.
And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen.